Let us pray. Prayer from John Chrysostom, a fourth century theologian that we, uh, uh, we pray this prayer a lot in our, our liturgy. Almighty God, who has given us grace at this time with one accord to make our common supplications unto thee, and dost promise that when two or three are gathered together in thy name, that will grant their requests. Fulfill now, O Lord, the desires and petitions of thy servants, as may be most expedient for them, granting us in this world knowledge of thy truth, and in the world to come, life everlasting. Amen. And uh, I use his prayer, John Chrysostom, uh, because uh, this is a class on Romans, starting um, uh, a brief, uh, very brief run through the first eight chapters of Romans. Um, Romans, the end of Romans 8, some of us will know this, uh, leading up to the great coup de grace, stroke of grace, for I am convinced that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor demons, nor principalities, nor powers, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord, you know, Romans 8, 38, 39, um, verses that a lot of us are familiar with. We're heading up to there in only six short weeks, um, so it's really sort of a breeze through. Today is Romans 1, 2, and 3, and then we'll slow down ever so slightly. And, uh, and just take Romans 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 each on successive weeks. So that's a um, short class on Romans. Why? I was talking to David Tanner earlier today. Um, Romans is where my heart beats. It's where a lot of uh, uh, the church's heart has beat over the centuries. Um, I say for my own good uh, graces, I like to teach Romans roughly about every three years, and I think I'm due. <laughs> And I teach it just to teach myself, to, to, to deal with the material, to read it, to really engage it in some sense or another. Uh, whoever wants to come along, you know, you're welcome here every Sunday, but I'll talk to myself if I need to. Uh, John Chrysostom, whose prayer we just prayed, um, say a little bit about what it has meant over, and I have to say, Leslie, you did such a great job this morning. And, uh, and I say that because I do want everybody to sort of recognize that, but the blue eyeshadow, just it's really great. So, um, <laughs> what was that movie? Um, my girl. He's like my mother said you never have too much blue eyeshadow. <laughs> and I grew up in that town, so that's why I can say that. So, um, John Chrysostom in the fourth century uh, liked to have the Book of Romans read to him two times every week. Um, the church has just absolutely been littered with uh, the this particular book of the Bible, Romans, the letter of Paul to the church in Rome, written about 56, 58 A.D. Almost, and this is the boring part, if you aren't in all this, few people throughout history, including um, sort of the, the rise of what's called the historical critical method in uh, around the time of, of the Enlightenment and, and uh, post-Enlightenment um, with the, uh, the, the rise of what's called German liberalism, in the, in the middle of the, the 19th century where we really started to look at Scripture and say, well, you know, this is probably a redaction, meaning, you know, Paul didn't write it, but somebody else did, and this probably isn't true, and this probably is. And, it, you know, it's still very much alive and kicking Time magazine. Everybody likes this with the Jesus Seminar. It's slightly on the wane, thanks be to God. But, um, uh, but, but even those scholars, I mean, there's just few people up, up to contemporary scholarship that say, that Romans, um, with the possible exception, some people will question Romans 16, that Romans is Paul's letter. There was a person named Paul who was converted uh, in a very um, substantial experience while he was traveling on the way to Damascus, and he was once a Pharisee um, of, of uh, uh, 
of a particular sort of lineage, and, and he had a, a massive conversion. All this is attested to, you know, 10,000 times over by non-Christian sources, and they say, and that man wrote this letter, practically speaking, word for word, few textual um, errors in it, meaning copyist errors, because they didn't have a printing press, you didn't sort of type it and then hit send, and you can't go back. I mean, he wrote it, and then somebody else copied it, and those are called copies. Um, few of those errors, I mean, it's just Paul's word. Uh, so, the church has um, always thought that, and it's had a particular place in, in, in theology, in church history, when the church has reformed itself from one thing to another. In the early church, when, when Augustine was writing, for instance, and refuting Arian and the different heresies that were emerging in the early centuries, Romans had a significant part in that. In the church in the Reformation of the 15th century, 16th century, Romans had a significant part in that. When the church had its revivals in England and later in America in the, um, what, in the 17th and 18th centuries, Romans had a significant part in that. When Karl Barth, who Mark Gentile is going to bring back into our screen, when Karl Barth brought back an orthodox view against that German liberalism, which was referred to earlier, Romans had a significant part, which is to say Romans has been a part of the revival of the church since the church was the church. And this is what some people have said about it throughout the ages. Um, a Swiss theologian named Frederick Godet said, Romans is the cathedral of the Christian faith. This is kind of the pump up the volume part of kind of getting you fired up for, for the book of Romans. Because um, it does me. I'll say I can geek out on Romans. I know it's kind of weird, but um, so, you know, like I said, I'll talk to myself next week if I need to. Um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the English uh, poet that we read in eighth grade in the rhyme of the ancient mariner or whatever that was, um, called it the profoundest book in existence. Um, Martin Luther uh, said, this epistle is the chief book of the New Testament, the purest gospel. Um, his contemporary, John Calvin, said, if a man understands Romans, he has a sure road open to him and the understanding of the whole of Scripture. So he saw it as the linchpin of it all. Um, William Tyndale, the English reformer, said, it is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament. No man can read it too oft or study it too well. For the more it is studied, the easier it is, the more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is, the more it is searched, the preciouser, or good word, the preciouser things are found. For Paul's mind was to comprehend briefly in this epistle all of the whole learning of Christ's gospel, and to prepare an introduction unto him all of the Old Testament. For without doubt, whosoever hath this epistle perfectly in his heart, the same hath the light and the effect of the Old Testament within him. And then in our own century, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a converted physician uh, who became a theologian, an Englishman in the, uh, in the middle of the 20th century, called it the colossal and incomparable statement of the, of the Christian truth. And then even N.T. Wright, who's got a very sort of, not sort of, a very particular view of Paul, what he calls the new perspective on Paul, um, a favorite of uh, Stephen Colbert. He's been on the Colbert Show several times, and he's really brilliant. He's been here years ago, but we'd have a difference on, the, on, the, on who Paul is and, and, and his significance. But he said this about Romans. Romans is suffused with the resurrection. Squeeze this letter at any point, and resurrection spills out. Hold it up to the light, and you can see Easter sparkling all the way through. I thought that was great. Um, uh, so it has been a uh, primary part. When John Wesley was converted, um, uh, funnily enough, after he was already a missionary, he came over to the States um, as a missionary to, to Georgia. Um, so he was been in Savannah and seen where he was and all that. And he, uh, he fell in love with a girl, and she didn't love him back. And he really got run out of town um, under threat of his life by her father. 
um, with his tail between his legs, hiked it back to England, dejected, and uh, overheard, uh, in fact, Luther's famous preface to Romans, not even Romans itself, but Luther's preface to Romans being read out loud in a Bible study. So this is just Advent small groups is all this is. It was being read out loud, and he overheard it as he was walking down the street, and he pinched his ear, and, uh, and he started weeping. And he said, I did feel that my heart was strangely warmed as I heard the purest gospel. And so he was converted from unbelief, even as a Christian. And so that's kind of the word that I hope to bring into this room, is um, the word for us Christians who, in our unconverted continents uh, uh, that we each have in our own hearts, will hear that word, this purest gospel, this, uh, this, um, this Everest amongst the Himalayas, uh, uh, as we, we trek through, very, very briefly, the book of Romans, these six weeks. So that was my, um, that was my fire up intro. Any comments or thoughts? Let's go. So, um, uh, Jay actually asked me last um, Friday, we were at lunch together, if I'd have a text. I don't really have a text that I'm following per se, but some people may be interested. And by the way, Ron, over here, told me that Robert Capon, who is Ron and Michael and I taught the um, uh, parables class this summer and really relied upon one of Robert Capon's texts, he passed away, I think it was last Thursday, is that right? So, so the church lost a saint, um, heaven gained another. Uh, you know, just mention that in passing, that, that if anybody was following along in that book, Robert um, Farrar Capon, as he's called, um, probably at the age of 88, 92, something like that. Um, but this would be Stephen Paulson's book, Lutheran Theology. We do have a couple of copies in the bookstore. I'd like to be fair when I recommend a book. Um, Robert Capon's Very Accessible, which is one reason I, um, I recommended it. Um, this is not inaccessible, but it's, it's a little bit more, little bit more dense. Um, uh, if, you're, if you've read works of theology before, um, you'll find this to be very enlivening. Um, it's not purely an academic work. It's not laden with footnotes. It doesn't have all sorts of different languages and all that. Um, but if you're up for a challenge, a uh, little bit of a challenge, it's sort of, and it's going to be similar to the way I approach Romans, I think, these, these six weeks. Uh, it's about Romans, but it's not a commentary. Um, it's going to be sort of a theological perspective on the book. So I just commend it to you, if you're interested, um, called Lutheran Theology. Um, and it's not um, Lutheran denomination. It's Luther of who Martin Luther was and what he, he taught and believed as through the book of Romans. Um, so as a preface to all that, and this comes a lot from, his, uh, uh, from Paulson's work, um, what goes on in the book of Romans? This is all a preface, and you can leap through if you want, as some of you all have, and, and begun to, to turn to Romans 1, 2, and 3. I'm going to fly through some places today and have a short video called Strawberry Bootlaces. Um, the book of Romans, um, and this is Paulson's word coming out of Luther, uh, outlines most clearly the two tasks of theology proper. So let's, let's speak up a little bit. You know, it's a good reach. It's okay. Um, what are those tasks? The task of theology proper. Um, first, to amplify sin so that it is so great that no one is accepted. And that's what we're going to do today. That's why I lumped in Romans 1, 2, and 3. After the preface to a uh, sort of the introductory remarks and his uh, outline and announcement of what the book is about, and that's the righteousness of God, which has been revealed in his gospel, particularly understood as the good news of Christ Jesus, who was propitiated, we'll hear about that word a lot, um, poured out for us as a satisfaction for sin so that we then could be um, accepted by God. 
Um, after that, he then goes through and systematically, this is Paul's most systematic statement, um, says that as the Jews are um, uh, not without sin alike, as the Gentiles, anybody who's not a Jew um, is not without sin, and then he goes into Romans 3 and just repeats and says, so for all, Jew and Gentile alike, are not without sin. Um, and he goes through that litany of, uh, for we all alike are under sin, our throats are open graves, etc., and so forth. Just lays it bare, amplifies sin to such an extent that we um, cannot not see ourselves as sinners. Um, he wants to sort of make his task clear, and that's the first task of theology, to amplify uh, uh, sin. The second is to declare and that's a very particular word, it's a good word, to declare, to make a pronouncement, to say something new. That's the good news. I'm fond of saying that the gospel, the euangelion as it's called, uh, literally means the good news. Well, good news is both good and it's new. It's not good olds. For news to be new, it's really something new. And the gospel is a declaration of something new. And we'll hear that today at the end of Romans 3. For now... A righteousness from God has been revealed apart from the law. So what was now no longer is, and something new is being declared. And that's the second task of theology. So bringing it down just a hair, I like to deconstruct the word theology. You know, it's not a big deal. You know, you're a theologian, I'm a theologian, we're all theologians, let's be theologians. You're hammering and you hit, 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 hit your thumb, you become a theologian instantly because you have just called God right into the moment with some sort of expletive or phrase. Um, we, we, we are theologians. We can't not not be. Um, so it's the proper task of theology, which just is what's the word, logos, about God, the study of God, the word about God, theos, um, theology. Uh, now there's a whole history that you can appreciate, and that's, that's fun, it's enlivening, but just at the basic level, it's just uh, dividing the law and the gospel, which is dividing the two tasks, um, the amplification of sin so that all alike um, know their need, and then the, uh, the declaration of the new and good word about what God has now revealed to you and to me through his apostle Paul and the announcement through his son, Jesus Christ. So, with all that, what's the problem? The problem that a lot of us have is our virtue. Um, the religion is uh, the chief end, and we're going to talk some more about this a good bit next week when we look at Romans 4, but the chief end, the goal of most religion is behavior. It, the chief goal of most religion is some form of morality. Um, Romans 10, which we won't get to, has an arresting phrase. And it says that Christ is the end of the law. Um, we could translate that in sort of some different, some, some, some ways for our purposes. Christ is the end of religion. And I'm saying that intently because we're going to get into it next week in Romans, Romans 4 when, when Paul uses Abraham, who's the father of the three, the three Abrahamic faiths. When we all see those bumper stickers and somebody probably has it on their car, you know, coexist. Um, God of Abraham, this is Muhammad, um, Jesus, and, uh, and Abraham. Um, everybody comes out of the same, same lineage, so why can't we all just get along? Paul's going to say, by no means. Um, it won't work. Um, the only way we have a filial, meaning a family relationship with God, with Yahweh, is through 
the, the, the Son, through Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation for our sins, the hilasterion. So really, I'm, you know, told you I can geek out on this stuff. Um, he's going to say that there is something peculiar about all that. And so Christianity may be a religion, but what Romans declares, the primary task, the second task of theology, after we're all leveled, all of us, Jew and Gentile, Buddhist, Greek, uh, Jew, Christian, whoever, leveled in our common need, the proclamation and the declaration of God in Christ is, is new, and it is the end of religion, because it is the end of morality, it's the end of virtue, it's the end of, of, of seeking out behavior or compliance or, or some form of duty, obligation, of showing up, of... Uh, I was, I'm reading Where the Red Fern Grows right now um, with my daughter, a fifth grader. It's a great book, but I forgot about that. I haven't gotten to the sad part. But, um, so whoever the author is, I can't even remember his name. I read it, and I was like, oh, there it is. You know, he even says, like, and, you know, his mother told him in the Bible, uh, well, you know, God helps those who help themselves. And so he prays a prayer, and he says, Lord, I'm just going to try my hardest. And, uh, and he does, and he chops down the tree as much as he can, and then God makes the wind blow, and he blows the tree down because he tried his hardest, and then he laid his axe down, and God did the rest. And I thought, oh, crap. You know, <laughs> that's not in the Bible. It's Ben Franklin, and there it is. I mean, the author said, you know, all of my mom said it's in the Bible that God helps those who help them, and that is it. That's, that's morality. It's behavior change. That's showing up. That's obligation. That's, that's uh, uh, do what is in you, and God will do the rest, and that's not... That is not Christianity, and it's definitely not the second task of theology, which is the declaration that we all alike under sin have the gracious uh, blood of Christ poured out over us so that we now um, have access to the Father. Um, so that Christ is the tuxedo. Uh, wait, where did Leslie go? Oh, she's gone. So, um, that Christ is the tuxedo. I mean, that's the, that's the whole purpose of the... Uh, uh, of the, the parable that we enacted today, that, that those who wear the garment of Christ are accepted as God's own. Um, so anyway, I'm off, and we got a lot to do. Um, any comments on that? Christ is the end of religion. Christ is the end of morality and all that. And so I hope when you're starting to answer, you know, create some objections, now wait a minute, that's what I'm hoping for, is that you're thinking, so does that mean I can do whatever I want? Or what about, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, Michael's class a couple of weeks um, ago. What about, you know, all these things? Start and set up the objections, because Paul is going to answer them as well, and I hope we, we engage them. So, um, but God is, uh, the first task is to, um, to amplify sin. The second one is to declare uh, the, the good and new gospel, um, and to bring about the end of religion, the end of law, the end of obligation of should, ought, must to bring about, ultimately, a freedom. Um, so, with that, um, let me recollect myself. Uh, let's look at some. As you're following along, I'm going to breeze through this quickly. Romans 1, 16 and 17. This would be the, um, the, the, the announcement of the theme of the book. So, what's Romans about? This is your thesis. For I, Paul, am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Quote from Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk. Um, 
and this was the, uh, the word which Luther really turned on, um, his own conversion, what he called his tower experience. As he said, I did wrestle with God for years and years and years, uh, wondering how a sinful man, he got the first part of theology, he knew his need, uh, but he couldn't reckon himself as a declared righteous because he said, I know that I am not made righteous. And that's what theology had taught him up to that point, that, well, if you believe then my substance will change. And he looked in himself, so to speak, and he knew that, look, I'm not getting better day by day, little by little, sort of progressing up the hill. And it just, and Luther then came to the, to the fear, said, well, what if I'm not in? You know, it's an understandable question, isn't it? Well, what if I'm not getting any better? I've still got the thoughts, my behaviors aren't changing. You know, outwardly, I might look a little bit, you know, more dressed up and all that stuff, but inwardly, um, nothing is, is, is improving. And Luther, this, this, this killed him. I mean, he was absolutely, he was bipolar, he was, he was neurotic, um, it, it totally undid his, his health, and it was, it, was, it was literally killing him. And he wrestled with God up in his tower um, until finally the Holy Spirit broke through on this verse where it said, and finally, um, in 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And that word revealed begin to take on all the important. Um, we get the word apocalyptic from that word. Um, the apocalypse of John is the revelation of John. Um, and so an apocalyptic moment where it turned and it said the righteousness from God is now apocalyptized uh, and shown me something that's new. I thought it was this, thus and such, but now I see that I was wrong and it's something else entirely. For the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Um, and he starts to realize the faith to which God is referring, the faith which the prophets attested to, for the righteous shall live by faith. Luther assumed, as everybody else did and still does to a significant extent, that the Bible must be saying, believe harder. Faith is sort of the noun form of the, word, the verb believe. Believe harder. If your faith, if your belief is enough, if it's sufficient, whatever that means, it's a floating curve in terms of the law, then God will, 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 will make you righteous. And he realized that's not it at all. The faith to which God is referring here is the faith that God has in himself about Christ's finished work, the hilasterion, uh, which is the, the, the satisfaction for his own wrath. Y'all following? That, some, that the, the, as we are justified by grace through faith, it's not my faith, my belief, that I'm squeezing my eyes hard enough but that God looks down and says, the cross, that was enough. I have faith in the efficacy. I have faith in the sufficiency. I have faith in the cross to say that's satisfying. All that Gil needs, all that Eve needs, all that Ter whoever needs in order to come before him. And that was a thunderstruck. And not only in Luther, but then, of course, it rolled out. And here we still are. Um, being uh, overtaken by this revelation, by this apocalypse. Um, so that's where it starts. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, this new and good word, for it is the power, the dynamite, the dunamis of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then also to the Greek, for it is in it the righteousness of God is revealed by faith for faith, for the righteous shall live by faith. And then continuing in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God, there's a word that we don't use enough, the wrath of God, which is real, um, uh, what is wrath? 
Um, we usually think of it as anger. I'm a wrathful God, something like a Zeus or you know Joe versus the volcano. Where you got to satisfy the uh, the volcanic God by you know throwing in a virgin, make Ryan or whatever else, and, and you know and make that that uh, that God uh, happy enough for the moment. That's that's all called um, uh, propitiation to satisfy whatever need another might have in order to not be angry anymore. Um, for this wrath of God is revealed, same word, from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. This is um, sort of natural law has its root in this, natural theology. Um, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so he begins to get into the, uh, to the problem of idolatry. And although we don't, most of us have little shrines in our houses with, uh, with uh, you know, little wooden men or something else like that, it's not a reach at all for us to realize how contemporary this, this word is and to realize all of these, these, uh, these creaturely things, these creations that we've made. Um, our televisions, our... our uh, you know, gosh, pick on whatever. Um, exercise, the myth that exists that some, one day I'm going to have a balanced life. I'm going to balance family life and personal life and work life and my marriage and everything else. And we chase after these idols just like we're bowing down to a little wooden sculpture and all that. All of this is being revealed. Um, and with the sting of it is saying this is, uh, in fact, invoking the wrath of God for it is taking us from him. Um, trying to mark my time. There's a great Karl Barth quote that I think I'm going to pass over just to get to a little bit of this. And so it continues where Romans um, 1, down at the bottom, Romans 1, 32, or uh, uh, start at 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. It's a hard word, but it's one we've got to reckon with. God gave them, that's us, by the way, God gave us up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done, for they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. I love these lists that just kind of flow off. Evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. That's my favorite. I mean, it just gets thrown in there. You're a murderer. You're a rapist. You don't do what your mom tells you to do. I mean, it just kind of runs on. Um, uh, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. That's the hard word, that even our motivation, because all this is inward. Um, where it's to say the end of morality, which is the outward behavior. Look, we can't even get our inwardness because that's what matters. Um, uh, that those who practice such thing deserves to die. That uh, not only do they give them up, but uh, not only do they do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So um, our wrath is warranted, um, and Paul will later even say the wrath of God is warranted, that the law, um, lowercase l, Capital L, law refers to, say, like the, the Ten Commandments and all that. Lowercase l, it just refers to all these things which, which impel something out of us, like a should, an ought, a must, I've got to do this, I need to do that, if and then, any of those contingencies. Um, all of that, Paul is now going to say, actually serves one purpose, and that's to increase sin. 
For where the law is, so increases the trespass. Where the inward motivation rests, we in fact find that we hate God. That's a big leap. Again, I hope you're engaging that in your mind and starting to, uh, to, to raise some of the objections. That where the law is clear, the should, the oughts, the must, I begin more and more to hate God. Um, that, that we are inventors of evil, as it just says in that list. Why? Um, because this divine law has not only helped, but has even increased sin for the reason that he who, uh, that for the reason that the more law, the more that the law forbids, this is a quote from Martin Luther, the more our evil nature hates it, and the more it wants of its, sorry, I got a lot of typos in my, my notes, um, it begins to give rein to its own lusts. If you tell me not to hit my brother, well, now that's all I'm fixed on. Um, and even if I don't hit my brother, well, then I'm in the quandary that now for, for either fear of punishment or for the love of reward, um, I'm not hitting my brother, which puts me equally in a quandary because none of this has any verticality to it. None of it has any freedom to it. One way or another, I'm bound to the law on its own merit where I'm doing it either for a reward or just not to get spanked one way or another. And he's going to say no exceptions. Um, Paul wants to speak very universally and even overstate his case. So any comments so far? And then I'm going to wrap things up and try to get to a, uh, a place where we can look at this, and uh, which is going to illustrate what I just said, um, this little two-minute video, this two-minute short, and, uh, and then get to the but God part. Well, this is um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Um, I know him from, uh, he's one of the kids in a river runs through it, but he's been in a lot of movies. I recognize him. I don't know if y'all know him. It's this little short Pete Pritchard sent it to me called Strawberry Bootlaces. Um, to, uh, to think about where the law is so increases the trespass. Um, he gets this uh, great little thing of candy, um, which is called Strawberry Bootlaces. It's like those really sugary sort of strings. Um, uh, and he eats it, and then he gets a phone call from his parents, and they say, come on over and, and have a meal. And then he thinks, you know, and just to avoid the shame, which I'm sure that they can tell, even though they don't see anything, he not only has another meal and he's just stuffed, he has thirds, and so he just can't eat another, um, just absolutely bloated to the point of pain. And then when he, uh, he gets home, what does he see? One last strawberry bootlace that's stuck in the bag. And so what does he do? Of course, he eats it, you know. <laughs> And so, and all this is, I'm saying that just to set it up so you can know what to expect. Uh, we can't not not eat the strawberry boost laces. It's a good illustration of the sin which is original to us that we all alike are, um, are under. So it's just two minutes, kind of cute. How do I explain the strawberry boot laces? Well, I suppose they are kind of licorice. They're thin strands of red, chewy stuff that's meant to taste like strawberry, but just like every other strawberry-flavored thing, they don't really taste like strawberry. They're still delicious, however, and you can find them in plenty of shops, watching, waiting to catch a customer's fancy. So you see them, and you buy a pack of them, intending to share, or at least make them last, but you end up eating the whole bag in an afternoon. Sated, you're relaxing the knowledge of a few pence well spent. 
Then you realize when your parents call you in for dinner that there's no way you can manage a full meal after consuming such a quantity of confectionery. And that in this moment you are experiencing the exact mythical instance of spoiling your dinner, which you were warned so many times as a child, but it's too late now. And you can't lose face by admitting your parents were right, so you keep quiet and eat the whole meal and even have second and third helpings just to hide the shame that your parents can't see that you imagine is so evident in your every movement. Sweaty, nervous, you shovel every new mouthful of wholesome home-cooked family food into your trembling mouth. And though you have full that dish a few bites, you can either spit it out nor stop eating. You spend the rest of the evening certain that you're either going to throw up or split at the sides, and you go to throw away the wrapper, but you notice, to your delight and horror, that there is something in there still. Something red and stringy. There is a single strawberry bootlace still inside the wrapper, and in spite of your already full to bursting stomach and your sense of self-disgust, you triumphantly peel the final sticky remnant from the pack and eat it, savouring every last drop of artificial flavouring and knowing for sure that there can be no benevolent god that would allow such magnificent unhappiness to flourish in the form of a mere child's treat. That, my friends, is a strawberry bootlace. I think that's really pretty good. Um, any thoughts on that or comments as we wrap up? That, my friend, is a strawberry bootlace. Um, you can't not not eat it when it's there to the point of pain. Um, if you've been around any form of addiction, which I think is a great description of our human nature as it just plays out writ large, I mean, that's, that's it. I mean, that's, that's exactly the nature of an addiction. Um, in Romans 2, just to outline it, not going to uh, comment, this is where Paul lays it out, the word autonomic. Um, we all, you know, for the medical in us, uh, you know, the autonomic nervous system, the word autonomos literally means a law unto itself. And Paul gives that word in here where uh, for the Gentiles who do not have the law, you know, they weren't ever given... Um, the Ten Commandments, and this is sort of, you know, what about, you know, the people in, in rural Nepal, um, the child that dies at age two, before they're even able to think or have any memory and never had a Bible read, what, what about them? Paul pulls it all in here. Um, for the Gentiles, who though they have no law by nature, do what the law requires, for they are a law to themselves, autonomous, uh, even though they do not have the law. For they show that the work of law is written on their hearts. And so the law is very near us. It's original to us. We don't actually need a whole lot of law preached to us. Um, uh, what we need as a preacher, preacher's proper role is the declaration of the gospel, of the declaration of the new and good work that now something different has come. And that's in Romans 3, 21. So you can turn to that because this is the declaration that a preacher properly understood, and this is why Protestants coming out of um, the, 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 the tradition and the legacy of, of Augustine in the, in the third, fourth century uh, through Luther and Calvin and Tyndale and, and, and many, many others have placed such importance on preaching, um, almost near sacramental importance at times, because this is the role of a preacher. And you wouldn't know this without the preached word. You don't know this simply by partaking of the sacrament, maybe their baptism or of Eucharist. You need the preacher uh, where the word falls auricularly on the ear.
And here's the word, um, Romans 3, 21. Uh, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed, same word, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That's the Meg Ryan of Joe versus the volcano, the offering as the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. I skipped over to verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be, so that God might be just and the justifier at one and the same time that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. For we hold that one is justified, this is verse 28, that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So, um, Romans, the declaration of the two tasks of, of Scripture, of theology, of being a human being beneath God, uh, is to, to amplify sin to such a degree that that by the law we become conscious or aware of our sin. It was in Romans 3, which I didn't read. Um, and that in knowing our need, the declaration falls on our ear through a preacher. Um, that but now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been revealed. And Paul is going to take this with all of the objections, substantial objections, uh, point by point through the next several weeks. Um, starting next week using the example of Abraham, who happened long before Moses. Um, so Moses brought the law, but Abraham comes up, what, in Genesis 12. Um, so uh, that's where we'll be. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this word, feebly offered. Um, uh, take your word in Romans and multiply it, Lord. Um, humbly, I ask, um, allow it to be the power of God into all who believe. Um, uh, especially as, as, uh, as I would get in the way of it as the teacher, that you would correct me and, uh, and allow your word to go forth. Um, thank you for, uh, uh, for this word in Jesus' name. Amen.